welcome back to the show. Today we've got David Zoll on the podcast. If you don't remember him from the last time he was on a couple years ago, you're going to just be introduced to a wonderful human being. He's great. Uh, his new book, it's, it's very good. Highly recommend it. And you guys are going to be glad to know David Zoll after this podcast. So thanks for listening. But before we get into David Zoll talking about his new book, which is entitled Low Anthropology, let me talk to you about something that happened just a few days ago in Dallas, Texas. A story about Matt Chandler, the pastor of the Village Church, came out. Matt is on a uh, indefinite leave with, uh, I guess, kind of the hope is that he will be back at some point. And if you've been listening to the podcast for a while, you know Matt you know, played an important role in my life when I was an undergrad, uh, just thinking about getting into preaching. He was the preacher at this interdenominational Bible study called Grace Bible Study, which I eventually filled in and replaced him once he went to become the pastor at the Village Church in Dallas. And so, you know, a handful of people have asked, um, you know, what's going on there? And honestly, I don't didn't really ever keep up with Matt. I don't really know what's going on with his personal life. Uh, so I, I don't have any specifics to get into with the actual, you know, spilling the tea on the story, uh, which I'm, you know, whatever. But what I do want to say is this story, more than anything, is a Rorschach test. You know, those Rorschach ink block tests where you see something and someone asks you, typically a psychologist, hey, what do you see in the paper? And the exercise is less about the actual ink splot drop on the paper, and it's more about what goes on in your mind, because that's going to dictate what you see. It's not too dissimilar from seeing items in clouds or in images of burnt toast and seeing the face of Jesus in it or whatever. All of those things are exercises in the illustration of how the human heart sees what it wants to see. And typically we'd say it's the what the mind wants to see, but it, it's more the heart. I mean, it's where your heart is. If if you're someone who's really loyal uh, to Matt and you've found his preaching to be deeply meaningful to you, you're going to see the story in a positive light and you're going to read it in the best case scenario where, you know, this is a guy who got you know caught up in a conversation he shouldn't have, uh, a relationship that he shouldn't have maybe, and it went too far, but they caught it before it crossed, you know, some substantial line and... If you are not a fan of Matt Chandler, or you're not a fan of the Village Church, or you're not a fan of Reformed Theology, or Acts 29, or whatever, you're going to see this as substantially worse than it actually is. And there's plenty of people who've said, you know, usually when a pastor confesses to something like this, what we're seeing is just the tip of the iceberg, and pastors only confess to what they get caught with. And so there's a narrative out there that people want to go to with that. And honestly, I don't, I don't, I don't know which one it is. Um, I, I think there's. Who says this? Um, oh, this is uh, our friend from Telos. Todd Dethridge says that the cynics have all the facts on their side. And so if you want to read a story about a pastor having to take an indefinite leave because of some form of transgression, then you have plenty of background stories to say, this is just like X and Y and Z and, you know, all the names. And, you know, some of them have even been on the podcast already. And so you have plenty of reason to be suspicious of that. And if you want to see this as, hey, this is a person who's confessing that something got out of hand and it wasn't uh, an affair, but it was you know beyond that, you're going to see that too. And I think this is just a, a reminder that we see what we want to see. And I think there are plenty of questions about the way that men and women interact and what's appropriate and what is brother and sister 
uh, relationship look like? Because in the church, you know, we're called to be family to each other, which means men and women are now not just men and women, but they're now brothers and sisters, and there's actually a relationship, and there's connection that we're supposed to have, but there's also healthy boundaries and relationships that uh, exist within those boundaries. And I think there's also questions about leadership, and if you have uh, just all, all dudes in the room, there's one way that you experience a story like this. And if it's uh, more inclusive of women in the conversation, it's probably seen in a different way. Um, that honestly is part of the dynamic. But more than any of those more granular issues, I think the point that we need to remember is we have very little information, very little details, but what we do have is our own presuppositions and our own pre-established lines in the sand that we typically reflect those opinions. And if you would have told me before something like this happened, that certain people would say one thing anti-Chandler, and yet certain group of people would say something pro-Chandler, I feel like most of the participants have lived up to their party loyalty that we would have seen beforehand. I mean, that's just how people are. And this is more reflective of us than anything that's happening there. I, I'm not discrediting what's happening there. I don't know what happened. I'm not saying it's not a thing. I'm not saying it is a thing. I, I don't know. I don't know. But what I do know is it's just another reminder that a lot of this stuff is an opportunity for us to have revealed what's already in our heart and where we're coming from. And again, the cynics have all the facts on their side, so I'm not saying you shouldn't be cautious and you shouldn't be worrisome. And there are definitely some weird things that have happened with the Village Church you can find them on Google. I get it. Like everyone's seen them already, probably. Um, I'm not saying those aren't a big thing. I mean, there's some substantial things that uh, there are plenty of stories that have been written about, and I don't know the truth of them or the veracity of these stories. But what I do know is, yeah, we just kind of stick to our camps. And I don't know how helpful that is. And I don't know if it's really moving us forward, but hopefully somehow we will. Um, anyway, uh, the book we're talking about today is actually somewhat timely as we're talking about a book about how we understand people and how we understand sin and how we understand uh, people who are on pedestals and what we expect them to be. And they don't always live up to that because I don't think any of us can actually live up to that. Anyway, that's the rant. Here's the podcast. David Zob, he's great. Yeah. You're going to love him. Here we go. All right, friends, welcome back to the show. I know some of you are dealing with a problem where you think too highly of people, you think good of them, and you're sick of being disappointed by people. Well, guess what? I have the solution for that. It is the new book by David Zoll, who's on the podcast today. Welcome back to the show, David. Oh, thanks for having me, Luke. You know, when you're writing a book about low anthropology, a low view of people, like talking to me, I feel like is just perfect for you. This is exactly what you need to build your argument about how you should view people very poorly. I'm here to help. You're a living illustration of yes. everything I'm trying to talk about. Exactly, yeah. exactly. <laughs> I'm here to be the person. Really, the cover image is nice, but what you really should have done is just had a picture of me in the front. Like, are you sick of people disappointing you like this guy? If so, I'm going to explain what you should do. And then you have a perfect hook right there. I know. It's done. It's, I, I, you know, bestseller lists right there. Yeah. You're, the, you're the poster boy for, uh, you know, human limitation. <laughs> <laughs> That's so great. So you write this book, and it's a really good book, and I think it's extremely timely. One of the things mm-hmm. that our friends in the 12-step community teach us is that expectations are premeditated disappointments. Mm-hmm. And sometimes we walk into relationships with people, and we have expectations for what they're supposed to be and how they're supposed to live up to something, and uh, like it doesn't ever come to fruition. And you think there's a solution for all those things by changing the way you look at people. Yeah, I think that a lot of times um, 
Yeah, the book does have a lot to do with expectation, and we have uh, sometimes unconscious, or a lot of times, unconscious expectations of ourselves as well as the people we're you know have relationships with um, in our spheres, in our churches, in our political life, whatever you whatever you want to say that. We don't even realize all the expectations we're bringing to the table until the person doesn't meet them or yeah. we don't meet another person. You know, I'm sure people have been in situations where they're like, I, I didn't even realize I was breaking some rule that you had or some expectation you had of me until I broke it. And the other person is like, well, I didn't realize I had that expectation until you so you know egregiously um, fell short of it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I do think that there's... Um, a lot to this question of expectation and that we, uh, as you, that the AA ism, the aphorism expectations, I think the one that way I'd heard it was expectations are a planned resentment oh, or a planned disappointment. And I do think that we, um, yeah, we, we import all sorts of, uh, astronomical, um, or stratospheric expectations of ourselves and the world that, um, make life just a perpetual falling short. For sure, for sure. Stratospheric is a word I've never heard, but I absolutely love it. Uh, so <laughs> that right there is worth the uh, price of this podcast. Um, two, the second thing. A couple days ago, I had this terrible exercise with a friend, and my friend Jay and I were talking, if you were going to make a list of the most influential pastors in America 15 years ago, and you write out a list of who they were, and then you go fast forward 15 years later to the present day and you look back on those same names. And this is obviously oh, in the aftermath of uh, the story about Matt Chandler over in Dallas coming out, mm. uh, which I assume you, you might have seen that one. I did, yep. And so you look at all those names and you go, wow, uh, 15 years ago you would have these names as like some of the most influential voices in Christianity. And today you go, oh, uh, wow, uh, <laughs> there's some, something's going on here. And how do you think the way that we view pastors, specifically like uh, very influential, large platform pastors, has been buttressed by some unrealistic expectations for people, specifically like religious heroes? Yeah, I think one of the great problems in the church or in just Christian, Western Christianity in general is that you have um, – the message that attracts people usually is a message of forgiveness. Uh, you know, I, I've made a mess of my life. I've had some sort of um, fall from grace or simply I just can't get by on my own. Mm -hmm. And I hear this message about God who loves me and, uh, you know, has given himself for me, uh, wants to have a relationship with me. These wonderful, this wonderful good news of the gospel. And then you become a Christian and then they say, OK, well, now. Uh, no more disappointments or it, there's an implicit, it's not always explicit, but I think that there is a, uh, the, the, the bar gets raised in a false way in, a, in, for Christians. And this, this translates the higher you get, I, I've found generally speaking, the higher you get in most Christian hierarchies, church hierarchies, the less grace there is. Um, Oh, wow. And uh, the less transparency there is and all these things and people are hiding. And there's all sorts of things to be said, I think, about celebrity, too. Um, Caitlin Beatty just wrote a great book about that. Um, but, yeah, the, the, we have a we have a select what I call in the book a selectively high anthropology. So Christianity views people as in need of help, in need of saving, in need of deliverance. But then we believe that Christians sort of play by different rules. And once that happens, if you continue to 
be a human being or struggle with some continual pride or sin or some kind, then you just end up hiding it more and more until it comes out in these remarkable ways. So I, I do think it's a th- answer. The, the, the book does address this phenomenon pretty directly, yeah. but gosh, what an exercise that uh, I, I can, I can think of about 10 names off the top of my head yeah, that, yeah. that would uh, apply to. Yeah. Unfortunately, I've been doing this podcast for a while and uh, <laughs> you've had them all on. <laughs> I, I, I don't have all of them, but I've definitely, uh, I've definitely had a few of them. And uh, mm-hmm. it's, yeah, it's definitely humbling. And, and Matt's someone that, uh, it, you know, my listeners know, you know, I, I replaced him at this Bible study that he kind of got his break at. And it's one of my, you know, first things I was really doing in a, like a, a large platform kind of way. And uh, yeah, so that's, I mean, it's, it's unnerving. And I think the way you described it is like the, the, the bigger the platform or the higher the podium, whatever you want to call it, the higher expectations that we have for your anthropology. And, to, and we're saying anthropology, like we're talking about like the way we expect people to be, uh, the way we expect people to live. Give, yeah. give me a better definition and then I'll continue that thought. Uh, in anthropology, it's not like people hear that word and they're like, oh, $4 word, get run away. Um, or they think of like college classes that they didn't take. Um, and anthropology is simply what you think human beings are like. Uh, yeah. It's an operative theory of human nature is what, how I would, I would say it. And everyone has one. So like if you're the person that has ever said the phrase, uh, I'm only human, well, then you have that you're expressing an anthropology. I have a sense of what it means to be human that I have that, uh, you know, you d- don't 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 make me into a superhero or that these kind of things. Like we, we we all have we go through life with unspoken assumptions of what human beings are good at what they're not good at what they what what sort of their blind spots are um and so that's your anthropology and so when i say i'm just a human that's reflecting a low anthropology whereas right yeah usually when someone says i'm only human it's because they've put their foot in it somehow yeah. or like or they're dealing with some as uh, again stratospheric expectation that right, they right. would have no uh chinks in their armor yeah and so um when you say i'm only human it means that uh, hum- no no one nobody's perfect like, that's an anthropology yes. for example yeah, yeah. uh or uh people never change like that, that's an anthropology that's an anthropology or uh people can change but only under these conditions so a lot of times when we're talking about our lives um we're talking about anthropology. So when we have this low anthropology where we go, I'm just a human, I can't do any better, I'm just a person, I'm just a man, uh, mm-hmm. we're reflecting this low anthropology, but like the higher people get on the on platform or influence or whatever, we start to change the anthropology for them, and all of a sudden that becomes a high anthropology that we expect them to live into, and then there's a role they have to play, and then all of a sudden their humanity isn't coming out directly, but it's coming out sideways in really unhealthy ways because they can't channel the same uh, honesty that the rest of us can have when we can say, I'm just a human. Absolutely. But I also think sometimes when you're getting a lot of affirmation and accolades on a sort of a monumental platform, you start to believe your own hype. And so Mm -hmm. uh, you you actually start to believe you're God's gift. I mean, and maybe even if you're preaching about how you're not, like it's, I've just watched it too many times uh, once people get fame or some degree of just notoriety or influence, they start to somehow think that they deserve it or that it yeah. makes them better than other. You just, just buy into it. For sure. And then all of a sudden, 
sometimes the very thing that that brought you there was was a sense of humility. And I think a lot of times, as the case in pastors, there was a, a, a very sincere faith in God, not in oneself. And then, uh, but over time. Um, what 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 brought you there sort of vanishes and you kind of become a shell of that and mm-hmm. you start to believe um it's 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 a very uh, difficult almost i would say an impossible system to navigate uh in a healthy way yeah i think one of the uh, red flags for me is the way people <laughs> tell stories about themselves specifically pastors if they're telling stories in which they Surprisingly, they're always the hero of the story where they're the one doing the good thing or they're the one, you know, who's changing the world and they're the one who's always like fixing the problem. I feel like mm. it's, it, it's a subtle way, but it always perpetuates this myth that, oh, you are the, the person who lives into this high anthropology that we all want you to be. And I, I think that's part of it is that people play a role that others want them to be. And it, it helps them. Like if you set yourself up to be the, the answer man or the answer woman, then people will follow you. Like we, we like people who can play that role for us because it, I don't know it. I, there's probably some psychologists who can tell us more about why we like that, but it's definitely there. Yeah. I mean, we like to build people up as well as tear them down and makes us feel better about ourselves at, at certain times. Yeah. It's, it's insidious though. And I think that the the book is not supposed to paint a picture of people as, um, bad, uh, or, but though, I, but I does want to paint a picture of a, a comprehensive picture of what it means to be a human, which as a, from a Christian point of view, it means that you are, yes, you're created in the image of God, but you're also fallen, broken sinner. Um, you're limited, you're a creature, you're finite, you're mortal, yeah. all of these words. Like, um, I want to paint a comprehensive, I think a, a high anthropology basically says uh, the, the truest version of yourself is just the top slice of your kind of, your Instagrammable mm-hmm. uh, it, it, it days and your hours and moments. But a low anthropology doesn't say those aren't true. It just says the, the, the real version of you is actually a much larger swath of uh, human experience, both the, your, your lows and your highs. Yeah. So. You talk about this myth of the good people versus bad people, which, hmm. you know, any, any parent starts off watching kid stories with their kids, and the stories are almost inevitably very two-dimensional. You have the good guy, you have the bad guy, and you, you always want to identify which is the good guy, which is the bad guy. My, my kids used to do this. Hey, which one is the good guy, which is the bad guy? Like, right <laughs> away. And some of us never outgrow that. And I think part of what you're helping us see it collapses, or maybe better said, it adds a third dimension to all people. And so it's not good people who occasionally do bad things or bad people who occasionally do good things. It's that they're just people. And people mm-hmm. can do both good and bad things. And so these sort of like absolutist black and white ways of seeing people is deeply fraught with problems. Hugely. I mean, it, it becomes a... Once you break your, that life, the world down into the good, the good guys and the bad guys, and I think we do it in it. We rarely do it in just that sort of kind of old-fashioned way. I think there are other ways we do it. We, we think of those who who get it and those who don't, yep. or yep. those who are part of the problem and those who are part of the solution. But you start to basically it, it becomes a, a the it's a very easy way to deal with pain is to blame it's just to basically blame those people and um or uh there are the people that can handle life and there are the people that can't and i'm one of the people that can and so get these other sufferers out of my way like that's a um 
that's a high anthropology statement because it breaks people into categories. A low anthropology is very is usually interested in in in, in sort of puncturing. No one is ever purely victimizer, but no one is ever purely victim. Um, no one is ever purely. There are people that are act in villainous ways, um, but if you got to know them, there would probably be. There might not be. Um, something sympathetic, but you might be able to f- understand a little bit of why they're like the way they are. Uh, just in the same way is that, you know, really great people are capable of, you know, doing terrible things sometimes. Like, like that's what the show Fargo is about. You know, that's like what the, um, that's what a lot of shows exactly. are about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's, uh, we have so many of these like, uh, anti-heroes where whether it's Walter White whether it's The Sopranos whether it's Dexter whether it's you know like everyone on uh, what is the show Succession like everyone like there, mm. there's just so many bad people that we watch on TV and we find ourselves wait a minute how come I'm rooting for Pablo Escobar in Narcos like why am I rooting for you know this person who's clearly a reprehensible person and it's like these stories that we watch haven't like filter down into the way that we understand all people where all people if you get to know them you're like well maybe there's another side of them in the same way that the good people maybe there's another side of them as well and I, I don't know I feel like a healthy dose of reality would help uh, every one of us and this this what you talk about like yeah. the irony of low self of low anthropology it's actually like a very graceful way to view everyone mm. absolutely the irony of low anthropology is that a view of human nature that sounds initially a little insulting or at least sobering is in fact liberating and uh, just unifying. But a a view of human nature that sounds flattering is in fact in the longer term, uh, it's oppressive (laughs) and, and sometimes just um, completely, um, uh, uh, um, you know, imprisoning. Well, that's the imposter syndrome. You talk about this in your book where like, it seems like the imposter syndrome is growing rampantly. And part of that has to be because a view that I'm supposed to live into something that I, I can't be like, I can't be the perfect parent. I can't be the perfect, you know, fill in the blank. And when we think everyone else is doing that, all of a sudden I'm, I'm left out because I can't be that unrealistic person that I see on, on the screen or see in, you know, wherever you tell this fascinating story about the, I can't say the guy's name, uh, the untru- uh, untrustworthies, uh, page 41. <laughs> Lao Duan. Yeah, yeah I was like, I can't pronounce the name. T- yeah. Tell the story. It's, it's fascinating. Well, it's a story about the social credit system in China, which is being introduced in various places. And it, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a credit system that doesn't just take your financial history into account in sort of whether you can buy loan, get loans or not, but it takes also things like, you know, um, your relationships with other people or how you treat your parents, for example. That's a big one in a, a filial society like that. And it's a story of a – it happened on NPR a couple of years ago. I heard it. I thought it was just unbelievable about this guy trying to buy a, a, a train ticket. And – uh, he wasn't allowed to. He tried to buy it. It says, "No, nope, you're not allowed." In base, you've been put on the untrustworthy list. And I mean, I, I, that's the tra- translation of it. And come to find out, he'd sort of he, the coal industry had collapsed in China. He was a person who had been involved in coal and had lost a bunch of money and defaulted on some sort of loan, and had been considered untrustworthy. He could no longer even buy a train ticket. So what happens is he's driving through town and there's a, he sees a billboard that says these people are untrustworthy, and he's, his name and picture flashes up on it, and he starts to get you know ostracized socially until one day he's driving through town. 
down and he sees uh, a friend, uh, someone he knows. Uh, his picture is also on the untrustworthy list. And so he decides to call up that person and they get together and they have a great time. And before you know it, uh, all of the untrustworthies are hanging out together and they're having a great time. <laughs> and everywhere they go, like people don't like the fact that they're having a good time. They think they deserve to just be sitting in a room miserable, I guess. Um, but in a way, they've been set free from this uh, edict of wholesomeness that, that um, in this case seems a little arbitrary, but I'm sure there are other ways in which it's, it's not. Um, but there's something beautiful about him finding love and acceptance on the other side of like being put on this untrustworthy list and the fellowship. It's yeah. fellowship. It's just like an AA meeting. Exactly, you know? yeah. It's fellowship of all these people who've been, who've been painted with this brush and uh, the result is not a bunch of people shaming each other, but a bunch of people feeling like, hey, all right, I got nothing to lose. How are you doing? What's going on? Let's talk. You know, it's a beautiful example of what I think, yeah, what real fellowship looks like. Yeah, it, it, it was funny. I feel like you, you paired that story with another story about uh, a single parent a friend of yours, and she got a DUI. She couldn't drive, was going to these meetings with uh, a bunch of what I imagine to be a bunch of old old guys who were yeah. decades older than her. One gave her like a uh, like sausage from a hunting trip, even though she's a vegan or plant based diet or something yeah. like that. And at first, it seemed like this would be like this unlikely friendship they would never get along. But in the same sense that you know our friend, I can't say his name, the guy you just talked Loud about, on. yes, Loud him. On. Yeah. Uh, in the same way that he found like this unlikely community, this person's it's the same experience. Like all of a sudden, you you get rid of these. Um, veneers that we put on and put like our raw humanity out there and all of a sudden like yeah we're connected to each other in a way that many people don't experience yeah I mean she, I remember her talking to me and saying like I actually look forward to this every week to hang out with these you know guys in their 70s who are all sort of on the surface look like a very different population and demographic and yet what she found was that they were united in their um history of embarrassment mm -hmm. <laughs> and therefore she didn't feel like she had to put on any kind of pretense and that was um she could be honest and you know as we know that i think christians believe you you bring something into the light it gets better you know it's um yeah it's it, that sort of honesty and free flow of uh reality is just a i think that's what Again, that's that can be transformative, especially in light of like the grace of God. For sure. Well, you you compared that to the reality that most of us experience, or many people unfortunately experience. Uh, you, you talk about your work with college students. You worked for ten years or so with college students. Is that right? Mm -hmm. what, I'm still doing it, actually. Oh, still. Uh, yeah, I'm on my year thirteen, I think. Year thirteen. <laughs> well, good for you. Good yeah, for you. I love it. But you talk about in in that time that you've seen uh, almost like a double of people using. Uh, being prescribed uh, anxiety and uh, uh, antidepressants. Thank you. Yes, yeah. double that. And one of the ways you described how you've heard these stories over and over again is that people often, especially these young people, are seeing people as either an audience or an adversary. Which is yeah. say, oh my goodness, that's just awful. Like that's how you <laughs> see people, like you that play to them like they're the audience or they're an adversary that you have to compete with. Like how, how toxic is that sort of environment for anyone's, you know, wholeness? It's very toxic. And I think it's borne out in the mental health data, which is very, very sad. I mean, I, I would say that like, um, it's hard not to make it sound like this is getting 
worse. What, what I've found is the, the, what social media and smartphone technology has, has done, it's, it's taken you know, tendencies that are already there and amplified them. But as far as I can tell, and I tell a couple stories in the book about this, everyone I meet with, every one of these students, thinks that basically they're the only one that's suffering. They basically think that other people wow. have, have a much... Uh, have uh, much more are on much more solid ground than they are, and now that's the universe. Everyone says that. So the, the, what 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 people in ministry I think also one of the privileges of uh, it's also a burden, but one of the privileges of it is that behind closed doors you realize that everyone, no matter how happy or secure or shiny they look on the surface. It, there, everyone has something that's going on. Like no one actually feels that way, even if, even if comparatively, perhaps they are. But uh, and so, my experience of college students was that everyone uh, was basically under the impression that they, that everyone else was happy and they weren't, and or everyone else had, had, had things uh. came easier to. And that's that's loneliness. But that's also a function. But again, that's a function of high anthropology. It's also a function of advertising. It's a function of receiving only input. That, that the only things I'm seeing is that everyone appears happy all the time. I'm not seeing posts on social media of people crying, you know, or or yelling at their at their child or something like that. I'm only seeing the first day of school. Yep pristine looking kids so all of a sudden I'm, I'm under the impression like well i guess everyone else has got it together and i'm the one that is still trying to figure it out um yeah. and so yeah that kind of core loneliness i think is a function of of high anthropology yeah you re- you reflect on the invention of the like button which came out mm-hmm. years ago and at first our our uh Facebook. I don't. I didn't want to say friends of Facebook because I don't feel like that's very friendly for anyone. Um, but <laughs> at first, Facebook thought they were doing something that was positive, as, as at least the way they narr- narrate the story is. They thought, "Oh, we're going to bring people together, and this is going to be positive." But in some ways, it is just the only thing it's liked. It's it's likened people to more struggles with depression and mental health issues, and because it's always just like that. That's what we're going back to, because that's all we see. Mm. Yeah, I mean that's. That's one of the, 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 the thing with the social media, I think you find the more you look into it, there's, we want to think that there's, again, that there's villains, that there was some sort of conspiracy to um, yeah. create all this sort of, I don't know, um, affirmation addiction that people would get and that we could then market to them. I don't think it actually happened that way. And if you, I think it, but I think it was a people that, um, the younger there were younger people that designed most of these platforms, and they were fairly naive. They what they yeah. thought was that people would use the platform the way it was intended. They didn't realize that if you if you that a like button, I intend it to spread positivity and encouragement. Therefore, that's how it's going to be used. If I just tell people that, and the human nature is such that we are at, in the book. I call it doubled. Um, we are constantly uh, in conflict, and we uh, don't. Um, we, even if we know we should do something, we don't, that doesn't necessarily give us the ability to do it. There's an agency issue. Yeah. And so, uh, we take the like button and we turn it into a, a, a bludgeon or a, um, just a sort of a cutthroat. And, you know, that doesn't mean there have been times, by the way, I think, you know, you post pictures of your kids and I do feel encouraged by the like button and I don't necessarily feel I'm in competition, but overall the effect has been, um, the effect has been really kind of corrosive to our collective mental health. And it had to do, 
with the fact that there was not a single person in the room when they were designing these that had a somewhat lower anthropology. <laughs> it said, well, hold on a second. You know, I've read Lord of the Flies. I, <laughs> I, yeah. I'm not sure. I've actually read the Iliad. And I've, I've noticed that human beings oftentimes take things that are meant for good and they use them in other ways. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, that's, that's part of what I'm trying to talk about in this book. Yeah, and it's not like the villainous move of, hey, I'm, I'm in a basement hatching up a plan to destroy the world, but it's, you, you talk about it like doubleness, this, you reference uh, Paul's famous text in Romans 7, like what I do is not what I want to do, mm. um, where the ability to want to be doing something is always there maybe, but the doubleness is that what I actually do is not that. And so even if it's conceived and projected to be this really positive thing that, that I want to do in my life, what ends up happening is, you know, we, we end up all falling short of what we want to be, right? Yeah, I think that's, I think that's the, that's the universal testimony yeah. <laughs> of the world. I mean, there might be some people out there that say, oh, I'm just I'm exactly where I want to be and I'm who I want to be, but I tend to be suspicious of that. Okay, um, are you just terrible at parties because you just go around and go, yeah, you probably suck, and I know you are terrible, and you're <laughs> a bad dad. Like, is it, I mean, does this lead to that sort of, uh, like, way of just, how oh, I, yeah, people are just no, divorced. it doesn't. What it leads to is, is saying, you know, the things that you're hiding about yourself are probably the more interesting things about you. Like, that's, uh, I, I want to know more about you because I have a feeling you're more than the, what you're presenting to me. And mm-hmm. like that there's, there's other wrinkles to you and, um, there's a complication and there's richness to the human identity. That's not flat or just like what you see is what you get. So I think, uh, but I, by the way, I also think that it, it lead this sort of view of the world, which again, I, I as a, think is very Augustinian Christian Pauline view of the world, I think it's, it leads to uh, compassion. You realize that no one is as free as they think they are. Everyone's got some sort of burden they're carrying. Many of us uh, have, uh, are banging our head against the wall of our own limitations, and we don't feel it's okay to be honest about it. Yeah. And so I think a, a party, I like to think, I, I, I'm deeply interested in people, I, and I love... The thing about low anthropology, Luke, I, I'm a person that loves artwork and um, music, especially. Okay. I'm a big music, movies, books, that yeah. sort of thing. And one of the things that you find is that the miracle of life is that despite the very real shackles that we all live with and the you know gravitational pull towards self-interest and sin, the, the miraculous thing is that such so many beautiful things happen so often and there it sets you up to be in awe and in, in wonder rather than being completely disappointed that people aren't better than they are. You get to be excited and in awe and um, just grateful that so many great things do happen and people do surprise you rather than being surprised by the opposite. If that makes sense. Yeah. I, I feel like I've been doing church work for you know, two plus decades now and I don't get really surprised by much anymore. It's just like I've, I've heard enough stories, like I've been doing this for a while, and it, it doesn't surprise me. But the very thing you referenced about, you go to a party, you know people have something underneath the surface, and if you get underneath the surface, like that would actually be a really interesting conversation to talk about who they actually are. I've had that conversation with people where I'm like, hey, you're finally being real with me, and I know you don't feel like better about what you're 
displaying as who you are by being real to me. But I like this version of you way more because at least you're, yeah. you're real. And I've always just thought, man, this is probably ain't real what you're putting forward anyway. And so it's real cool to see like what you actually are as a person. And, and on the other side of that is to, yeah, I think it opens you up to beauty and wonder and, and gratitude for the things that are right in front of you when you're no longer expecting everything to be perfect. When you, you find these hints and, 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 and like these, these subtle winks from, from goodness that show up right in front of you, you go, wow, this is really special. That's, I think that's a great way to put it. I, um, yeah, I think it's it's interesting. Usually when the people that I have a hardest time with, like I'm just thinking of folks that just rub you the wrong way or you've had a bad ex- I've had a bad experience with. Uh usually when I when if there's an unguarded moment between us, like uh, um you know, I I they they let they let down their guard and they share what they're really thinking about. Um and what they're really thinking about is usually Oh, so and so doesn't love me, or um, I'm gonna I'm alone, or I don't know if this job is the right job. Like, what happens is not only do you want to be closer to that person, but the enmities you've you've, yeah. you've sort of built up sure. have just they crumble, and you all of a sudden feel close to that person, and it just it happens every single time. You know, this is the 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 um, secular sphere gets this in a way that sort of like the work of like someone like Brene Brown, um, Kate Bowler does this though. She's a Christian, but there's a lot of, there's been a lot of books written recently about, um, you know, uh, performance is, is killing us. Perfectionism is killing us. Vulnerability is the key to a wholehearted life. Now what they're saying is that a high anthropology is killing us. Yep. We need to maintain a more comprehensive picture of human beings. Now, now I got kind of sick of reading these books and being like, is anyone ever going to connect this to like the human, con- like sin, creatureliness? Like these are all, this is all like shooting fish in a barrel from a Christian perspective. And yet I would, I would even hear another person say, have you read this book by Brene Brown? Have you read this? And I was like, it's great. But let me tell you, like, it's, it's also, um, Christians should be talking about like this is not a there's nothing to be um I, I it, it's 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 what we've always believed and somehow the church has become a place where people don't feel like they can um let their guard down or that they have to present a, a facade of holiness and so all of a sudden they're going to other sources to find a place where they're allowed to be human yeah when I think that what someone like Brene Brown is, is actually borrowing from the Western tradition that Augustine really, and, and Paul, and of course, Jesus and the Judeo, whole Judeo Christian yeah. sort of. There's some people who've been doing this before and yeah, you tell this uh, story about this weird wedding ritual where the person talks, <laughs> oh, you're going to disappoint each other and you're bad and this and this and this. And it's almost like we as Christians, and maybe I'll put the blame on us, is that we've watered down the word sin so much that it doesn't mm-hmm. mean anything. It's typically sin just means that, that you say the wrong word when you stub your toe or you're at the wrong place at 10 o'clock on Sunday morning instead of this this um, more substantial definition. And did you read Unapologetic by Francis uh, Spuford? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that book. Yeah, And I, I, this book is, is, is my sort of, a, a, it's, it's partly my attempt to, write an American version of that, a dumber, a dumber version with, of it. With less F-words. Less, less yeah. F-words as well, though. Uh, he has, yeah. But his description of human potential to <clears throat> mess things up, yeah. I think it's just far more like 
descriptive of the reality when sin has no longer held on to its original definition because of the way that we've used it. We need to have something to describe the fact that there's doubleness, that there are limitations, that there is self-centeredness. Like All these things are ultimately just what Christians have called sin for hundreds, thousands of years, but now it just doesn't mean much because of the way Christianity in the West has uh, you know, played it out. Yeah, it's been a, it's been th- there's been a lot of uh, reaction against that sort of language because you know yelling at people that they're sinners has has been seen as and probably has actually been used as a vehicle of shame yep. and self-loathing. Um, and I don't think, um, yeah. And so so it's 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 funny, you know. I I talk in the book quite a bit. Like if you if you if you were brought up in a kind of a more conservative religious background where you were constantly told that you you suck essentially yeah and that you are a sinner and like you must repent and you, you better keep the lid on real tight yeah you know that's a confusing thing because that's both the low anthropology in terms of you're a sinner but also you somehow have it within yourself to completely control yourself which is not that's a high anthropology yeah but what happens is, and, and so if you've been raised in that, that's essentially traumatizing when it comes to using words like sin. Like, don't tell me that. I'm human being. No one ever told me I was good at anything. No one ever allowed me to like myself. Fair enough. I hear that. And that's like, honestly, but the, the world I grew up in was not that world. The world I grew up in was the more the everybody's special, I, um, you know, coastal um, no one, no, you don't do anything bad. You just sort of had, had a, you know, had a, had a hiccup today. Yeah. You made a mistake or there's no such thing as evil. Like it's, it's, you're just having, um, you're not, you know, you're just, you're, everyone is, um, great essentially. Yeah. And sort of, so I've found that people who grew up in that situation, uh, and have never had the permission to be a complete and utter, you know, wreck hear the words about sin and um as 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 like oh i'm not the only one you know uh i can finally relax and so i want to acknowledge that the context you you were brought up in will will affect the way that you're able to um, engage with things like a low anthropology and yet the answer is not to say that um you know, not to yell at people, they're so great. You know, it just doesn't work that way. It's, it's much more the admission, oh, you mean I'm not the only person here who can't get it together? As I say somewhere, it's like the, if people think the, the doctrine of original sin is really defeating and shaming, but far more defeating and shaming is the doctrine that I'm actually wonderful. I just haven't really been able to pull it together quite yet. You know, it's like, (laughs) that's actually what creates, what drives people to despair. Because that's impossible. You you can't ever live up to it. Whereas if it's, hey, I'm I'm a sinner, I I think there is abuses of original sin where it's just like, you know, people suck, they're terrible, they're the worst. And it just, it stays there. And it's just like, okay, that's, that's just discouraging. And at some point when you tell people you're crappy all the time, they're just going to always be crappy. But if you tell people they're great all the time, they're also going to be crappy because they go, I know I'm not great. Because I, yeah. I, both of them just seem like they're missing something. I feel like there's, we, we've lost like the gospel of sin. 
where the, there's, mm. there's good news to go, wait, there's something, there's this active force that's working against God's desire for me, the powers and principalities of this world um, that cause my enemies not to be the real enemies because my battle, battle is not against flesh and blood. There's something, though, that's pulling all of us away from what God wants for us, and mm-hmm. it, it doesn't have the final word. We believe Jesus has overcome sin and ultimately the, the last enemy to be defeated, which is death. Mm. But still there's this power that's working against me, and I need to be able to name it somehow. Yeah. I think that's You know, Frederick Buechner, who died recently, um, the wonderful writer, mm-hmm. his, one of his aphorisms, he's got a lot of them. A lot of them. But he says, resurrection means that the worst thing is never the last thing. Uh-huh. The worst thing is never the last thing. Now, a high anthropology doesn't allow there to ever be a worst thing, or you have to sort of act like it's not actually that bad, or you have to sort of minimize everything. A low anthropology with a, a sort of a, uh, the, the one we're describing how it's been misused would say that everything is the worst, like there is no yeah. good thing coming. And I think what I'm trying to retrieve in this book is a sense in which um, not only is this, are you not the only one who's making it up as you go along, but that uh, if you're, when you're in that category, you're in the category of people that God loves. Yeah. <laughs> and and you're, the, you're in the category of people that need other people and need collaborators and friends, but also ultimately need help on a spiritual salvation level. Yeah. So I, uh, one, of the, one of the great, well, I have a section there called the fruit of low anthropology. And I really think that community, collaboration, Curiosity. These are the fruits of low anthropology, not shame and you know uh, apathy. Those are usually a different. That's a different yeah thing. Sorry. I think it, I think it was in that section about the fruit, and maybe it's not. But you talk about masks, and the way you talk about masks is way better than I did. I wrote a book like four years ago, and I made the joke about how people on airplanes who wear masks are dumb. And if you're on an airplane, we're all sharing germs as part of flying. And then COVID happened, and I was like, well, that didn't age well. So um, <laughs> your, your thing on masks is way better than my thing on masks. Um, but you, uh, you tell a story. You're in mm. Charlottesville, um, yep. which had uh, – it, it's not Florida. Let's put it that way. Uh, in terms no. of the way it responded to, to uh, COVID and masks and, and a lot of stuff. You had a uh, speaking gig where you're going somewhere else that had – a more Florida-ish attitude about masks, and you go there, and all of a sudden people are, are, are operating with a different perspective on this than you did. And you had the ability to go, okay, well, these people are X, Y, and Z, but instead you just describe like an attitude of empathy and understanding that people see this differently that I feel like would be a, a wonderful witness for what the church can give to the world right now and how we understand our shared self-centeredness. I think it helps us befriend people who view things differently from us. Oh, well, thank you. I, I hope that that, that comes across because it's not a partisan book in any way, but I did note that, you know, um, you could, the, the temptation is to say, well, we're the people that care about science and they're the people that only care about liberty or something like that. Yeah. Or we're the people that care about liberty and they're the people that only care about, you know, control. I, I don't know what, what it is. There, there's different ways we caricaturize one another. But what I felt was, in fact, in both situations, I was in a context where to not wear a mask was to get um, to risk real social rejection and um, a, um, 
frowns and just questioning looks. And uh, so the, the social pressure there was uh, on conformity in that direction. And the other, when I was in the place where I was, uh, the opposite was true. So to wear a mask all of a sudden marked you as self-righteous and fearful. And um, in both cases, the actual motivation was belonging. Yep. <laughs> and, um, and, and, and that's a very, very powerful motivation, but it's the same motivation. It's just below what you're belonging to is a little different. So, um, yeah, I, I think that that's true. And again, belonging's not like uh, necessarily a um, malign thing. Belonging's great. You know, yep. who wants belonging is basically love. Um, yeah. it, <laughs> but it wasn't the, the, what people thought it was some intellectual argument. It was all emotional. One of the things I try to say, low anthropology really um, understands people to be, pr- and I think the Bible understands people that we are creatures of the heart, not of the head, or at least we're, we're the heart first. The heart tends to win over the head. Um, I can argue with you about something until you're blue in the face, but unless my heart has changed uh, or somehow you win my heart, then um, we're just, it's just words. Yeah. In fact, a lot of times, if you're staying at the level of head without acknowledging the heart, you engage the heart in a negative way and people just get defensive. Exactly. So, um, yeah, that's another element here. Another wrinkle is that we're emotional creatures before we're intellectual creatures. Yeah, yeah. We, we like to think it's logic, but usually it's love that ends up winning out. Is uh, it's definitely spot on. I don't know if you've read any of John or fear. Yeah, fear. <laughs> but Jonathan hates work about. Um, yeah, yeah. He, he uses the the elephant and the rider, where he goes. We like to think that the rider, which is logic and reason, like is dictating what's happening. But really, it's it's the emotions that's driving us. It's the heart. It's love. However you want to describe it, but we're far less logical than we want to be. And there are a lot of people from Jonathan Hume to Jonathan Haidt to, to now you who are reminding us this is how people actually live. So maybe be nice to each other. It's how I live. Yeah. It's how I live. I mean, if you want to know where people are living, I mean, what are we, are we talking about? Like, if you want to win votes, you have to capture someone's heart, not their head. Yeah. Like the second we, you watch a uh, political debate, uh, everyone talks about feelings. <laughs> who do you feel did better? What kind of, and like, occasionally it's like, oh, they really scored a point about this, that, mm-hmm. or the other. But most of the time it's like, I felt that person was a jerk yeah. or I felt that person was confused mm-hmm. or I, it, it's always, uh, a- affective, you know, yeah. the, the emotions before it is intellectual. Yeah. Let me say something that I don't often say, but NT Wright was wrong. I once did a, uh, <laughs> we're doing a, an event out in uh, California and we were doing this live event, and this is like early in the podcast, and I didn't have a great deal of comfortability with like talking to an NT Wright. In a, like, it was a, a live interview, and uh, I, I didn't realize I was actually doing this, and like everyone was supposed to be there, and like everyone fell off the, the dais, and so it was just me and Tom Wright. Like, not literally fell off. They weren't like drunk or something, but they were not mm-hmm. there, and so I just found myself just kind of making stuff up as I went talking to Tom Wright, which is not the easiest thing to do, especially when you didn't have much experience like eight years ago. And so I said something. I was like, well, well, how do you feel about that? And Tom looks at me and goes, well, that's the wrong question, Luke. It doesn't matter what I feel. It's what I think. And everyone laughed at me. And I was like, yeah. okay, Tom Wright <laughs> just called me out. But he's wrong. He's wrong. Like, I, I think it really does matter how you feel about stuff because that's really the operating 
system that we're all working with is as much as we want to be logical people who go, these are the arguments that the candidate made and these are the, the reasons that we should think. It's, it's how you felt about it. Like we, we vote with our heart more than with our head with many things. Yeah. I mean, think about the, what, what, when you I talk to people, like, what is the issue that really animates you? Oh, is it is it immigration? Well, that's because, you know, probably you've had some experience of a person in that situation left. Maybe they were kicked out of America. Maybe they were brought into America. But something about your heart or or you lost your job because of, uh, yeah. of someone uh, took it. You know, it's like it's always a heart thing. So I think that that's okay. That's not a bad thing. In fact, Jesus was always interested in the heart. Mm-hmm. And um, I think when we talk about God, um, you want to you know being interested in the heart. Uh, you know, flesh a heart of flesh, a heart of stone. Mm-hmm. This is the um, these aren't. Um, it's not a coincidence. Yeah. So, and. I, it, it also helps me make sense of my own life. You know, there's so many ways in which I, 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 I say I believe this, but then I act in that way. For sure. And what's, what's going on? Or, you know, and also, you know, you watch something and it makes you cry and you're like, whoa, wait, wait is, what are, uh, is God at work here in some way? Because my emotions are engaged in a way that I, maybe I've even been using my intellect to uh, defend Yep. <laughs> you know, that's so true. That's so true. Um, let me tell you one thing that warmed my heart. I was reading the book and I saw a reference to Chuck Klosterman and I love <laughs> Chuck Klosterman. I don't know. like understand everything he's saying or maybe have the same perspective, but I really love the way the guy thinks. And you talk about his concept about end of history bias, where we typically assume that like we are the fruition of everything. Like everything has been leading up to us and we're the moment where we all get it and we're, we're the enlightened ones and we're the ones who finally, you know, we got the science and we got this and we've got that. And yeah. you forget like there's a good chance humanity could go on for a few more years. Like this, this thing isn't going to blow up tomorrow, I don't think. Mm-hmm. And at some point we're going to be, oh, those antiquated idiots who thought X, Y, and Z. And so maybe that should create at least a modicum of humility when we hold our positions that we think are logically and rationally true. Yes. Low anthropology, by the way, is a massive bulwark against certainty. And uh, it's not a a bulwark against conviction, but it's a bulwark against certainty. And certainty says that I know everything there is to know about something and nothing you can say can change that. And low anthropology says that's impossible for an incomplete person to have complete mastery of such and such. And so Klosterman wrote this book, What If We're Wrong? And he was interested in the question of like, what are the things that we'll look at in 50 years about today the way that we currently look at like, cigarettes, you know, um, because we have this bias. It's not just history. It's not like we, you know, um, it's not just global forces. We think all of human history has been leading to, you know, democracy, capitalism, all these things. We also, is our own lives. Like we look, we look back and we like, oh, when I was 21, I was, I was so silly. Uh, I thought this, that, or the other about, you know, the religion or I thought this about the world and now I really know what I'm talking about but the truth is in 20 years you'll feel that way about something about the way you're thinking and feeling right now mm-hmm. so what is that going to be I don't know it's but it should keep us to give us some humility and Klosterman is great at those sort of like intellectual yeah. you know parlor tricks yeah intellectual parlor tricks that's that's a good way to describe that gentleman. Okay. I'm going to close with two things. I'm going to say two things. One to my uh, listeners. 
Low Anthropology by David Zoll. It's a good book. You're going to want to read it. So go ahead and uh, put it on your wish list or go ahead and just buy it. Just buy it now. I think this might come out before the book actually releases. So that really does help authors. Do, do a uh, pre-order. That's a great thing for the author. So go ahead and do that. Trust me, you're going to like the book. Uh, and my, my word to you, Dave, you're a good writer. Keep writing. You really are very good oh. at this. You need to keep doing it. So I hope to continue to talk to you many times over the next however many years. And uh, that's happening because you're writing more books. So keep on writing because you're, you're good at this. Thank you, Luke. I really appreciate that. I mean, Thanks for having me on. You're a sinner, but you're good at writing. So I don't want to <laughs> divide that, but you're a terrible person, but a very good writer. <laughs> writing gets to be done by committee in a lot of ways. And so I'm a, what, what ends up on the page is not distribute just to me. There's all sorts of wonderful friends and readers and editors who... I had a great editor on this book, Caitlin Beatty. Yeah. So I'm, I'm, glad that, I'm glad that, it, that it, at least uh, the, the, the facade is intact. <laughs> <laughs> the smokescreen continues. Outstanding. Well, congrats, man. This is a great book. Thank you, Luke. Thanks for having me on. All right.